This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast with Robert Vore and Steve Austin. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Welcome to this week's episode of CXMH. My name is Robert Vore. I'm one of your hosts, and I am here with my co-host, Marshall Linguini. Marshall, how are you today? <laughs> Linguini? Oh, yes, I am. So, yes, I'm glad to be here. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, that's hey. a good one. That's I appreciate you bringing that back because last week sucked. So yeah, thanks last, for having me in name. Yeah, well, I had to make up for last week. You know, I feel like I lost some street cred, uh, so I had to, had to come yeah. up with a good one. That's good. That's good stuff. What's going on, my friend? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I feel like I always say that in almost the exact same. Actually, I've been listening to all you know as I listen through, and I feel like we both say I'm gonna make a like a bingo. Excel spreadsheet. No, like oh, a okay, CXMH bingo and and publish it just with all the things that we say often in in That's the shows. Funny. I like it. You know, mm-hmm. Rob Bell has he has listeners who have a drinking game, and every time he says "so good." Which is like all the time. Every mm. time he says "so good," people take a shot. Yeah, we need something. We need some kind of a. We need a bingo. CXMH bingo. That's fun. We yeah, should do yeah. that. We should do it and send it out to people who subscribe to our newsletter. Hey, if you have uh, suggestions for the bingo, go ahead and mail them in. That's fine. Tweet at yes. us. Facebook at us. Instagram at us. Whatever. Yes. Smoke signal us. Sure. Yeah. What's going on with you this week? <sighs> Chicken and baked beans, man. You know, it's just. No, Same I don't know what that means. I never know what your phrases mean. Oh, I don't know. That one, I, it, was just, it was just there. When you, the, As soon as you ask me, sometimes I like to not filter. You know, most of the time I'm very filtered and I think through exactly what I'm going to say and I'm very careful with my words. And Yeah? Oh, no? I mean... Oh. Well, but this time I thought, nah, I just won't filter. And so chicken and baked beans were like right there. And I'm, can I tell you, I hate baked beans. Like pretty much if it's picnic food... I despise it. Not a fan of hot dogs? Oh, God. Watermelon? uh, Okay, yeah, now I would eat my weight in watermelon, but not a fan of baked potato salad. Like, potato salad, that's the the nastiest thing ever. Yeah, I can't do that. How'd we get here? I don't know. Okay. That's fine. Hey, what's this episode? Or do we have anything else to talk about? Sewage. Kinsevich. Kinsevich. Kristen Kinsevich. That's who yeah. it is today. Dr. K. Is she a doctor? Uh, no, she's a licensed yeah, counselor. She should though. be. She's smart. Oh, she well, smart. there you go. Yeah. This episode is awesome. We talk about what it looks like to be a counselor on staff at a church, because that is what Kristen does. She is a counselor on staff at a church. We talk through what that looks like, what her day-to-day looks like, what things she can do and can't do. I actually had a lot of ethical questions about how you are in community with people, but also counsel them. Uh, and, and she expertly navigated all of those. And actually, I'll admit this, convinced me that it's a, a fairly viable option, you know, that, that it's a thing that we should be 
doing more. Obviously, we support more interaction between mental health professionals and church staffs and things like that. But uh, I had a lot of questions about what the practicality of actually being on staff would look like. And and she she got me. She convinced me. You, I feel like you say almost every time, this is one of my favorite episodes, but I'm going to say it this time. This really is one of my favorite episodes. She, she like, you know, there's people who, like, we enjoy all our guests. Please hear me say that. We love all our guests. They've all been phenomenal. But there are people who just interview really well, Mm -hmm. and she was one of those. Like, she had her game face on, and she just rocked this interview. I really enjoyed it. It was very... Um, educational, and I feel like she was very relatable, which I think is something that you want from a counselor, education yeah. and relatable. So yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a really good one. I think people are going to love it. Well, good. Hey, if you like this episode or any of our previous episodes, I remembered to say it this time without all the adus, but mm. tweet at us, Facebook at us, Instagram at us, do whatever, tell your friends. We've been slowly gaining some followers and we, tell your mom. we say this all the time, but we could not do this without you and you telling your friends, you know, maybe your pastor, your youth pastor. If you think we're putting out good information that is helpful to anybody involved in really life, if people who are struggling with mental health or people who know people who are struggling with mental health, people who are church leaders, ministry leaders, uh, we want this to be beneficial for everyone. And so if you if you think we're doing a good job, if you support what we're doing here, share it with your friends, do us a favor, you know, write us a review on iTunes and Honestly, if there's stuff you think that you would like for us to cover, obviously we're just hitting our stride. We have a lot of topics we'd love to cover. So we want to hear from you. Send us, tweet at us, tweet at other people that you want us to have on as guests. You know, we, we want to connect with uh, as many people as possible that we think are going to be beneficial. So send us your ideas, your suggestions. That's all I got. I would love this right here, this specific something. You remember growing up, maybe you didn't watch talk shows growing up, but I can remember in the afternoons my mom having crap shows on, like like not Oprah, like the ones – like the uh, – I'm trying to even think of who people would – like Donahue or somebody way back in the day. And they would come up in the middle of the episode with this little um, like mini teaser for an upcoming show and be like, if you have blah, 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 mm. email, give us a call. I'll call Sally, Jesse, Raphael. So – so here's my little my little uh, teaser. I would love to have if you that person who reached out to you in your darkest moment when you were at the at the bottom of the barrel, when you were at the end of the rope, when you felt hopeless. Maybe it was suicidal ideation. Maybe it was um, the loss of someone that you care about to suicide. Whatever the case may be, if there is a pastor, a community leader, somebody in your life that impacted you in a positive way, maybe you credit them for saving your life. I would love to know that story. Yeah. And um, and if if somebody like that is willing to come on the show and and we feel like they're a good fit, then you know they could very well end up on the show. So if you got somebody like that who who has made a huge impact in your life in the area of faith and or mental health, send us a note to cxmhpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah. All right. Well, now, without further ado, oh. yeah, we will roll on into our episode on Counselors on Church Staff with Kristen Kinsevich. Monkeys riding dogs! Welcome back to the show. Today we have another great guest. We are joined by Kristen Kensevich. Kristen, how are you doing today? I'm great. How are you, Robert? 
I'm great, and as always, Steve is here as well. Steve, you doing all right over there? Hello, hello. I'm doing great. Hello from the ham. <laughs> from B-Ham, right? That's right. The ham, B-Ham, whatever. There you go. Steve's over in Birmingham. I'm in Atlanta. Kristen, so you can kind of place us on a map. Sure, yeah, and I'm north of Boston, so I'm representing the New England area here. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. All over the place. All right, so we're talking with Kristen today. Kristen is a licensed mental health counselor on staff at East Coast International Church in Lynn, Massachusetts. In addition to her therapy practice, Kristen is a speaker and author of four books, including On Edge, Mental Illness in the Christian Context, and Emotional Traps, Finding Freedom in Everyday Life. She blogs weekly at churchtherapy.com and is passionate about increasing mental health care and reducing the stigma of mental illness, illness, specifically within the church setting. So right off the bat, you're a great fit for the show. We're excited to have you. The things you're passionate about there are the things we're passionate about here as well. So, so glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So today we are talking with you about a number of things, but kind of all under this umbrella of being a counselor on staff at a church. So you are, as we mentioned there, well, before we get into that, tell us a little bit more about yourself. I forget that bit and I jump right into kind of the questions, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. Okay. Well, um, I have been on staff at my church for the last 11 years, so um, I can talk more about that in my professional life. I'm sure we'll get there in a little bit, but just a little personal background. Um, My husband, Joshua, is also a partner with me in ministry. He is a senior associate pastor at our church. So he and I work hand in hand. He's in charge of all the discipleship and kind of shepherding type ministries. And so our work flows very well together. So I'm sure we can talk more about that. We have two children, Wesley and Hannah, and they're nine and seven. And we have a dog named Ranger and a cat named Rocky. (laughs) So I think that's kind of a little bit about me. So why is it that you are passionate about uh, the church and mental health? How did you get into that intersection there where we find ourselves as well? Sure. Yeah. Sometimes I ask myself that question. How did I get involved (laughs) in this? Um, You know, I I grew up in a church, a great, great church, but definitely... um, not fans of psychology. And they actually had a model um, in which um, one of the pastors did a lot of the counseling. And um, so that was in the biblical counseling model. And, um, you know, there's some, you know, good things about that. But when it came to people who were struggling with depression or anxiety, or even attention deficit disorder, or trauma, or some of those things, um, I, I kind of watched them fall through the cracks. You know, I saw answers from the pulpit as well as kind of from individual situations where people were kind of told, you know, the stereotypical things like trust God more and, you know, God tells us not to worry. So, you know, cast your anxiety on God. And, you know, so all of these mental health issues were labeled as spiritual problems. And it really uh, made a lot of people really stuck not only in their emotional health because they weren't getting the right help for their um, issues, but also spiritually stuck. And so I think there were some people that um, really kind of got stunted in their growth. And, um, you know, I watched also, and this is really typical of a lot of churches where, you know, everyone tries to look their Sunday best and, you know, all the 
parents want to seem like, you know, everything is put together and everything's great. And so growing up in that context where you kind of had to have everything put together to go to church, um, I really watched a lot of uh, discrepancy. You know, the kids, we hung out together, we talked, we knew what was really going on in each other's homes. And, you know, there was this kind of fakeness sometimes among our parents. And, you know, that bothered me even as a teenager. And so I really think that that began the process of me saying, you know, I don't think that this is the right answer for the church, but I see a lot of good in the fact that people are coming to the church for counseling. They want help there. Um, but it, maybe if I just had some training in psychology and counseling, um, then maybe I could offer this too. And so actually working in the church setting has been had been my goal since you know my senior year of high school. I really had a couple specific moments of calling and really felt that um, I needed to do something about it. And so um, as I began to talk and, and network with people, I kind of began to have my suspicions confirmed that my church was not particularly unique, and it represented a lot of what goes on in churches um, when people have mental health issues. So definitely um, trying to intersect into that space um, and really educate people so that there's not that stigma. Yeah, and you use a phrase there. It's actually in my notes to ask you about this this idea of biblical counseling, right? We see yeah. that all over the place. I've just in doing kind of the work that Steve and I do, I've tried to do some research on what different churches are offering. And that seems to be a really standard concept of biblical counseling, which on its face yeah. sounds awesome. We, sure, you of know, course. believe in the Bible, believe that it has wisdom for all situations. But there does seem to be this disconnect of that pastors are offering one thing, but that there's not a distinction between hey, you're going through a hard time and you need some some wisdom and guidance, or hey, you need a mental health professional. Right. Right. So what is your take on biblical counseling? So for example, I saw a church, and I'm not trying to call any church out, but I saw a church where sure. one of the ways that you could you know, be a, a, a volunteer there is through doing biblical counseling. And so you went one Saturday for you know a handful of hours, and they quote unquote taught you all you needed to do to be to do biblical counseling and then people would come to you you could be on kind of that team that mm. to me gets into some dangerous territory if you're using the word counseling now i know counseling has kind of a general meaning and a and a specific meaning but what are your yeah. thoughts on that yeah well you know i i like to look at myself as a bridge builder and so i i'll preface my statements by saying that you know i um i generally make every everyone angry <laughs> in what I'm doing because um, Christian counselors who are trained in psychology are kind of a little bit sometimes hostile to the idea of working in a church setting. Um, they really want to be separate from that. Um, and biblical counselors tend to not like what I'm doing because I do bring in the psychology element. And so I, I kind of make everybody mad at this point. Um, so I want to be a bridge builder between all these pe people and say, hey, we, we actually all want the same thing. So let's kind of be able to talk. Um, but historically, those two camps have not been able to talk. So let me give a little bit of context and history, because I think it's really important to understand how this all has come about. So, um, you know, really throughout the kind of 1900s and, you know, on in through that century, uh, modern psychology really began to form as we know it all the way back to Freud early behaviorism. And so um, around the 1950s is when um, the first 
Christians began to be trained as psycho um, psychologists or psychoanalysts. And so um, you had this emerging group of people who were saying, you can be a Christian and practice psychology. And they weren't really practicing within the church, to be honest with you. They were just making a statement that they themselves were Christian believers and also felt that it was within you know, their faith to also practice psychology. And, you know, you have to remember the early psychology, um, you know, Freud and many, many others, Carl Jung, made a lot of very spiritual and religious statements, and they were not very nice. And so, they, they definitely did not view faith as something that was beneficial or good, um, at times viewed it as part of the problem psychologically. And so, there's a lot of those messages in early psychology, so different from where we're at today with neuroscience and, you know, understanding mental illness and how the brain works and all that kind of stuff. But back then, that was a conversation. And so, still in the 50s, you know, the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that counselors and doctors use to diagnose mental illnesses, um, that was very first um, introduced in 1952. It's really mostly geared towards veterans who are coming back from World War II and, um, you know, diagnosing PTSD and things like that. Very rudimentary compared to what we have today and we're now all the way to the DSM-5. And so, you know, it's just, it was a different time then. And so, in the 60s, there began to be a lot of conversations in the church among pastors and, you know, some of these people who were coming out and saying, you know, it's okay to be a Christian and um, study psychology. Um, and so, in that context, Jay Adams is the founder of Biblical Counseling. It's also called New Thetic Counseling. Um, he wrote a book called Competent to Counsel, among many other things. And his point was really that um, pastors, because they knew the Bible, really had all the tools they needed to respond to emotional problems that people came up with. Because the Bible for centuries has been answering these questions about who we are as people, wh- you know, why we struggle all of that kind of stuff. Clearly sin is involved. And so, we know we're in a fallen world. And so, he really felt like these answers we we needed to cling to. And psychology was trying to replace those answers, which he did have a point about. I think he really, the early stuff in the context in which he wrote it, I think he was trying to really um, stay true to the Bible and kind of be a, a balancing force in this discussion. Meanwhile, you have um, Christian colleges and seminaries starting up programs that are beginning to integrate counseling and, and Christianity, you know, so psychology and theology, and, and really weeding out some of the stuff that Freud and others said that was not okay right. and not in line with biblical worldview. Um, but then also saying, hey, we can learn some things from these studies of human behavior and certainly as neuroscience has emerged and things like that. And so, um, there beca- that's where in the early 70s really is where there began to be this divide within the church, where Christian colleges and seminaries that were creating these integration programs um, were very much at odds with these other pastors who were following Jay Adams saying, no, psychology is a secular humanistic theory. We have nothing to do with it. And he did allow for what he called organic disorders, which was really like if you have a brain injury or a thyroid problem, his, his view of that at the time was fairly limited. I think some of that has begun to get a little bit broader as we have more information, but really the fact that we do not have a blood test or brain scan that we can do to say, okay, you're depressed, 
yep, we can verify that with a test. So here's the medication you need, you know, kind of like diabetes or cholesterol or other things that we can measure. Um, we don't have that yet for mental illness. There's some basic, basic kinds of tests they can do for like Alzheimer's disease. But other than that, we're, we're light years from where we need to be. Um, and so because of that and the lack of kind of, you know, objective measurements, there is still this raging debate about how to view depression, what's going on in a person's body um, when you talk about mental illness. Even secular um, people who are in the mental health field definitely see that there, you know, is not adequate evidence sometimes um, for how medications work or why they work or, you know, how we diagnose. And so there, there are issues within the mental health field for sure. We, we really need to continue to advance in, in those places. But ultimately, you have this place where now since the 70s, so what is that, almost 50 years ago, really, um, there's been this argument within the church. And I think in the 90s or so, Gary Collins tried to have a little debate where he brought Jay Adams and some of his guys into a room with some Christian integrationists, and it went so badly, no one's ever tried to repeat it again. It really <laughs> did not go well. And so, um, unfortunately, it's it's a fracture within the church. And um, again, that's why I, I certainly don't agree now with where biblical counseling has landed, though again, I think they are moving towards a greater level of understanding when we do have you know, tangible scientific evidence of things. But but there is a danger in that, um, you know, the kind of training that's necessary to really help someone who is dealing with a mental illness um, or even just, you know, a, abuse history. Maybe they don't have the symptoms of PTSD, let's say, but, you know, they have significant broken issues. Um, you know, biblical counseling is not going to be trained in how to psychologically understand and treat that level of a disorder. And so it is dangerous. It, true biblical counseling will not train you for a day and um, let, you send you on your way. Just to be fair to them, Jay Adams' right. course is you know bigger than that. Uh, there are churches that kind of take it and go run with it in a place that I don't think Jay Adams ever intended. Um, but it, it still definitely does not capture um, the aspects of psychology and the study of the human brain and the study of human behavior that I think are really essential um, for true mental health treatment. So I know that's a super long answer, but the context is so important because I think yeah. so often we say like, oh, biblical counseling stinks and whatever. But but really, you know, I appreciate what he was trying to do at the time. It's just that was 50 years ago and we really have a whole different conversation today. And I kind of feel like one thing I like to do is bring us up to speed on where we're at now so that we can have the real conversation and not be stuck 50 years ago. No, absolutely. Oh, yeah, I love it. I love the history of it. Um, yeah. So mm -hmm. tell me this, in, in your day-to-day life, your day-to-day -day professional life, what does that look like? like what, are, sure, yeah. what are your roles and duties? Sort of walk us through a day in the life of a church counselor. Sure, yeah. Well, one of the most important things is that my office is right in the church building next to the pastor's offices and, and everything else that's going on. So it's really integrated within the church life. So I'm there um, five days a week and I have about 30 sessions a week. And not everyone who I see is from the church. I have probably now about 75% of my caseload is from the church as our church has grown and gotten larger. Um, and then I certainly am a resource as well for other churches in the area. Um, and, and 
you know, my the name of my practice is New Hope Christian Counseling. So kind of self-disclosure right off the bat, you know, I don't discriminate against that. So if somebody wants to come into a church building and see someone that they know is is saying they're Christian, uh, I certainly welcome that. But generally speaking, almost all of my cases are people who, you know, are following Jesus in some way or spiritually seeking in some way. So they're interested in kind of uh, an integration of their faith and an understanding of their faith in the context of what does it mean for me to move forward emotionally and spiritually. So, um, yeah, I, I run a recovery group that's free and open to anybody. So that's one little other aspect of what I do besides kind of individual sessions and couple sessions. Um, and then kind of uh, outside of my session time, I am certainly rubbing shoulders constantly with pastoral staff. And so they often have questions, people that they're working with. Um, even if I'm not necessarily seeing someone in therapy, they may have a situation they don't know how to handle. So they ask me to kind of consult on certain cases. Yeah, we're, we're in an urban area where there's a lot of, you know, just mental health needs. And so um, in, and in the context of that, we're really reaching out to primarily unchurched people. So they're coming in with no church experience and really, you know, broken and raw and needing help. So even the people that don't necessarily make it into my office right away, still, you know, the pastors themselves have quite a few, you know, crises, you know, to deal with. And so I'm a consultant in that sense. Um, and also specifically my husband and I often, you know, the people that I do see, um, he's working with as well. And so we're really a team, um, as well as the lead pastor, Kurt, he, he, we're all kind of trying to dialogue when we can about, um, you know, a person's kind of path forward in discipleship and in emotional healing and those kinds of things. So when a person comes in for the first time to meet with me, um, and they, if they are from the church, I explain our model and I talk about how, you know, we all really work as a team and I do, um, give them the option, but generally they, um, sign a release that, um, you know, allows me to speak with the pastors because obviously I can't speak with them. And so they sign that. And, you know, a lot of times people ask me, well, gee, you know, don't people feel kind of awkward about that? And actually, at least in our context, people are very open to that idea. They welcome that. They want everybody to be on the same page so that they can, you know, move forward. And so um, they just know everybody's kind of rooting for them and, and want to help them the best way possible. So um, that's another kind of aspect. Um, and then I offer um, four workshops a year in our church that specifically talk about mental health issues or emotional health within the Christian life. And so it's just another way that I try to really be present because what I found is being on staff and being there in the building and having my practice right there has changed the culture um, of our church in really positive ways. Going to counseling um, is not something that has any stigma with it at all. The pastors very frequently from the pulpit are um, talking about mental illness or talking about counseling, very pro-counseling. And so um, it's just part of the process at our church, really, um, when somebody you know needs some extra help. So um, that's been really exciting to see. And I try to kind of have my presence be something that is kind of a continual reminder, like, hey, it's okay, you know, when you're dealing with something to go get help. So um, yeah. I guess one other piece I would say is that I'm active in the community as well to build 
partnerships with secular mental health agencies. Um, so I definitely have developed relationships with psychiatrists and doctors and other therapists um, so that, you know, when my clients need medication or even emergency services, um, that they know exactly where to get that. And and those people actually have really respected the fact that the church is trying to be part of the solution. And so I think, you know, I've had a lot of positive um, encounters because people are just really glad for extra help. We need all hands on deck and the church is a big part of the community. And so we we need to view that as an opportunity to participate in mental health care. And I think especially in more urban areas, that's really a critical role for the church to play. Yeah, absolutely. You kind of answered one of my biggest questions there, which was how you walk the line with confidentiality where talking to some of the other pastors and stuff, but you said you just put it in your informed consent right up front. Hey, are you okay with me talking with the other pastors about some stuff we talk about in here? Right. Yeah. And I, and I really, I mean, my job as a counselor is to protect someone's confidentiality, even when they sign a release. So this is not, you know, I'm going to share every detail of everything you tell me, because first of all, I don't have time for that. And second of all, that's, you know, really not protecting them. So I kind of make sure that the conversations are really, you know, focused on what the pastors would need to know to best help them. Um, And so certainly there are also sensitive topics, um, you know, some women who talk about, let's say, having an abortion in the past or being sexually abused or sensitive things like that, that they may want me to limit what I share. And so we talk about that openly, and I definitely respect that for sure. Yeah. So kind of in the realm of ethical complications, maybe you would even say, you go to church with all these people as well, I would assume, or some of them, the ones that attend the church and then also see you. Right. So how do you yeah. balance that when you, right, because there's ethical things about dual relationships, how do you balance sitting next to somebody and worshiping in a service, but then also them coming in? Does that ever get weird for you in terms of seeing people and having to kind of separate those two? Or... anything Mm -hmm. in that realm? Yeah, sure. Um, I get this question all the time um, because people definitely want to know how that works. It's one of the greatest things about church therapy is that I am there on staff. And so I expect to be at work when I'm at church. And so I'm, I'm on just like the pastors would be on in that sense. I'm not at church to have all my best friends there. I have my own social supports, and most of them are outside the church. Um, And so I'm really constantly in the role. The whole entire church building is the place where therapy happens. Now, there are some special ways that in my office we can do some some therapeutic work. But really, um, the thing that I have seen be the most healing for people is that I am there in the church kind of being able to worship alongside them and, you know, able to meet with them. And my behavior around them does not change. I don't get awkward or like, oh, no, they told me this. Now I have to run away from them. You know, I think that's one of the ways that actually the mental health field contributes to stigma. We have this idea that like, if we see our client in the grocery store, we have to run the other direction, you know, and people are people. They want to be loved. They want to know that you accept them. And so I just treat people like people. And um, one of the boundaries that I have is, you know, I don't do things with people like outside the church. So let's say there's a cookout at somebody's house or, you know, having people over my house. I don't do that. So that is a difference. Um, And even that would be certainly different from how a pastor would be able to function. So I do have some kind of extra lines there. But in the church building, 
I, I'm at work all, you know, all the time. And I expect that because that's part of my calling. I think if I had a practice, you know, let's say I had a practice somewhere else in the city and I was just, you know, wanting to go to church and have church be church for me and, um, you know, not be at work, then that would actually be a dual relationship because now I'm kind of their, their co, you know, fellow co, uh, I don't know, church attender or whatever you yeah. call it. Um, but then they see me kind of somewhere else as their therapist. And so now I'm two different roles for them, whereas church therapy brings it together. So I'm always one role. I am the on-staff counselor. And so it, it's really great on a Sunday morning when there's a crisis, which is not un- infrequent, you know, and I can talk to someone. So often the pastors will pull me out and say, hey, can you talk to this person? They're feeling suicidal right now. Or, yeah. you know, you know, this situation just happened. And so I'm, I'm there ready to respond in those moments, too. Yeah, that's awesome. I was in an ethics class a while back because uh, I'm in a, a, a master's program for counseling, and yeah. one we would do you know kind of vignettes, and one of them was about someone who joined a church as a, a counselor for the people there, and the pastor wanted him to go to a cookout at someone's house. So that's amazing that that's the mm. exact uh, <laughs> example that you just brought up. Yep, <laughs> there you go. That's yeah. Awesome. yeah. So you wouldn't ever say you and your husband wanted to you know join a couple small group or whatever. You wouldn't do that type of thing where those would also be the people that you're counseling. We tend to lead all of those things. So um, like the couples ministry, for example, they hosted a, um, a you know, kind of church sponsored event that was at one of the other leaders houses. Um, now that house, particularly those people were not my clients, but certainly, you know, I see many of the couples in the church, um, but we're in a leadership role there. We, we spoke at that event, you know, so anything that we do, we don't go as participants. We, we are the leaders there. So um, that was kind of slightly outside the church building, but it, it's a church sponsored event. So those tend to be different than, you know, just someone's having something informal and inviting people over. Sure. You know, I am, I think I'm quiet because I'm, I'm just soaking it all in. This is so good. And it gives me so much hope that there are churches who are figuring it out. Um, mm. uh, Kristen, I'm so thankful that you're a part of this movement that destigmatizes counseling in the church and the need for yeah. therapy. Uh, it, it is that's so hopeful and so gracious. And I just think how my life might have looked different on a personal level, you know, uh, 15 years ago, if it had been more than just a laying on of hands and a, a prayer with the pastor, but not not digging deep, not referring me somewhere, not you know, not telling me that there's more. Sometimes we need more than just Jesus, and that that's not a bad thing. So mm-hmm. I, I, this is just uh, it, this is just beautiful to me. <laughs> I love it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, think about how when people have cancer or when people have a heart attack or things like that, you know, the church, yes, we pray, of course, you know, and, and we believe in God for miracles, but we also actively encourage people to get the right kind of treatment. Um, actually, I, I was um, kind of aware of a different church situation years ago in which they really went so far on this line. And I I think actually you kind of get into Christian science a little bit when you go too far. Um, And the pastor's wife actually did have cancer and they went as far as saying, no, we believe that prayer can heal everything. And so she did not get treatment and it was an awful situation and she ended up dying. And of course the church fell apart and the whole thing was just so, so tragic. 
Um, and yet we do that still every day with mental illness. Mm-hmm. And those situations are also tragic. They just, you know, unless they end in suicide, they're not as visible. And so we're able to kind of still have some of the language that um, sounds okay on paper, but I've certainly been public about my rule of thumb, which is if you can't replace the mental health term that you're using, like anxiety or depression or whatever, with the word cancer, then you should not say it. And so I, I use that line to really say we need to treat mental illness. I don't even like the term mental illness, to be honest with you. I hope we change it someday to brain disorder or something else that's just very clear that this is not something yeah. that's just in your head. Um, this is a physical disorder. And unfortunately, if we lived 100 years from now, I'm sure people will look back and say, I can't believe how they handled mental health problems back then, not just in the church, but in general. You know, we have so far to go um, in in improving our abilities to treat and understand what's going on in the brain. But, um, you know, the language that we use around this is so important. And, And people, you know, when you said, um, Steve, like we need more than Jesus. People often would take offense to something like that until you kind of say, wait a second, when did my father go in for surgery? Or, oh, that's right, I'm wearing glasses today. Or, you know, all the different things that we do all the time that are above and beyond what's written in the pages of the Bible. We wouldn't be offended by those things. And yet, I say it all. I say it all the time that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus blood and good prescription drugs. It's just, (laughs) that's, it's, that's me. It's my story. I'm sticking to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's (laughs) great. And even if I think if you're really, really uncomfortable with, we need more than Jesus quote unquote, the, the way I often think about it and maybe even talk about it is like, that if, if we believe that God works through nurses and surgeons and stuff, then why wouldn't he also be able to work through mental health professionals, you know? Like, right. So. Yeah. And we just get freaked out by things we can't understand. That's really what that's all about. You know, w- because it's so subjective, you know, it, it leaves room for that, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So your bio on your website, churchtherapy.com, also mentions that you try to bring accessible care to pastors and their families through online mental health consultation and things like that. What help do pastors need most in your experience? Mm. Well, you know, Ed Stetzer's um, study that he did with LifeWay Research in 2014 about attitudes about mental illness within the church, um, he had a statistic that 23% of pastors have themselves experienced symptoms of a mental illness at some point. Um, and so, again, that includes things like depression, anxiety, um, bipolar disorder, any of those things. You know, sometimes we hear the term mental illness and we think of kind of just psychotic episodes or something. Um, but really, there's so much that um, is very common. And so, um, I think in part, pastors need permission to acknowledge that their brains can be disordered as well. And so there are things that can go on in, in, in their lives. And sometimes that's triggered by something you can identify. And sometimes it isn't, you know, sometimes people just start having panic attacks and they have no idea why, you know, and so unpacking that usually provides maybe some answers, but um, sometimes it's just something physical and they need physical treatment for that. Um, So I think that's one thing is just being allowed to, you know, be, be in pain or have illness. Um, and I think families also pastors, families really need, um, sometimes, you know, couples counseling or family counseling where, you know, just the stress of being in ministry is a lot. And depending on 
your self-care and how much you kind of take on personally, um, how much you feel like you're, you know, carrying the weight of ministry. Um, those things really take a toll on a person's body and a person's mind and on a family life. So those are really important as well, especially for church planters. I think they, you know, that work is really difficult and, um, you know, a lot of times you go in with high hopes and high expectations, and then it's years of work before you start seeing some fruit. So that can be very discouraging, and they just sometimes need to process that. So let me ask you this: if and maybe maybe there's not a difference, but I would love to know if there is the difference in a church having someone on staff who uh, deals with crisis management, or they have a a crisis management plan in place. How does that look different from what you do? Is that different? Mm. Um, can you specify a little bit more what you mean by crisis management plan, like an emergency plan, like an active shooter kind of plan, or it, it could be? It, yeah, um, there there are a couple of churches I know of that have um, someone like a a crisis coach on staff, uh, not on staff, on call. For when some terrible tragedy strikes, you know the the family, uh, the the two kids, uh, brother and sister. I'm totally pulling this out of thin air. But brother and sister sure. are uh, teenagers. They're in a wreck, hit head on, and they're killed. And it impacts the youth group. It impacts you know the church mm-hmm. as a whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. You have some terrible tragedy, and they bring somebody in for that. Yeah. Versus you, who are there forty hours a week. Right. I'm sure there's the benefit of both, but I, I would think that looks different. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in in a kind of tragic situation, it depended. I've thought about this. If there was something that happened at our church that happened directly in the church building, um, you know, a, a shooting kind of situation or something, heaven forbid, um, I think actually I would... I would definitely bring someone in as well because I'm sure I would also be affected. The staff would be affected. It would be something that would probably have to be outside of what I, you know, I can't be objective in that situation. However, those situations should be very rare. And so in that kind of situation, you know, that consultant is probably brought in fairly minimally. The kind of crises that I deal with on a, you know, semi-regular basis especially in our context where we have a lot of urban drama, I would say, you know, like things like, you know, domestic violence situations. I mean, we have that kind of not infrequently where, you know, we are made aware of someone who has a restraining order on their son or their brother or whoever. And and we have to manage that situation when the bro- brother shows up or in our kids' ministries when, you know, someone has custody issues and they, you know, someone who's not allowed to pick up the kid tries to pick up the kid. So some of that is certainly, you know, the training of the volunteers and the staff that we have, but also just me being right there, I'm physically present um, means they can come and grab me real quick, which is not going to be the case in, you know, a consultant situation where, you know, the tragedy happens and then, you know, the person comes the next day or whatever, you know, it kind of has the aftermath um, job. Um, Certainly the kinds of little crises that come up, even someone feeling suicidal, you know, I'm there. So 
I just co-talk to them right away. I think that's cool. It's sort of the, in my, my really simple comparison here would be the difference in having a pastor versus an evangelist, you know, who comes in and does a a weekend gig and then they're gone. Um, Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's talk. So um, you were talking about people doing church plants. Uh, We're right in the middle of that. We launched a church in November and uh, Mm -hmm. Lord have mercy. Yes, it is exhausting. (laughs) It is so great. And and we are loving it. But my goodness, if you don't practice good self, good self care, it's just, I mean, it'll just wear you out so quick. But if we wanted to bring in counseling, if we wanted to have a counselor on staff, where do we even start? Mm, What steps should we take? Yeah, well, you know, I'm in the kind of beginning stages of trying to help pastors answer that question. One of my dreams, and it's it's there as a tab on my blog, even though it really doesn't exist, it's just a thing that I, I have there to say, hey, we should do this sometime, which is a residency program in which I'm trying to develop relationships with um, seminaries. I certainly have connections and and frequently um, am interacting with people at Gordon-Conwell Seminary where I went to school nearby there, but certainly wanting to branch out and really talk to um, students who are in the process of getting training um, for counseling. A lot of them want to work in a church setting. They They feel like they have that calling, but when they graduate, they look at the classifieds and there are no churches that are saying, hey, come be uh, on our staff and work as a counselor. Um, And so they don't, they go where the jobs are because, you know, if they have student debt or other things, they have to work and they have to get their licensure hours. So we lose so many people that I think are called to the church setting because they don't know how to get into it. And then we have on the other side, what you're saying of pastors who would love this kind of thing, but they don't know any counselors. So they don't know where to go or how to find anyone. And, um, you know, if someone's already in established practice, you know, they'd have to, you know, really feel a specific calling into the church setting. And so what I really want to do is network, um, get some pastors who are interested in this and then help them connect with, you know, people who are graduating from seminary colleges that are at the master's level that are ready, um, you know, to begin their practice. And I think that point in a person's career is actually a really beautiful point to start, um, especially with a younger church. The church, um, let's see, I w- the church was about four and a half my church when I came on staff, so pretty young, and we're able to kind of do some things creatively because there aren't all the structures in place yet. And so I think um, that goes well, I think, when there's a counselor who's beginning their career and has some experience, but definitely has some growing to do, and the church has some growing to do, um, that that can be a really great un- uniting moment. So um, I think that's one way um, is just for pastors to be open to it. And then certainly let me know, because if there are enough pastors on my list, then I can say to seminaries, hey, I have some pastors who are willing to, to hire counselors. And to be honest with you, um, this is one of the awesomest things about church therapy is that because counseling can generate funding from other sources, um, hiring a counselor on your staff doesn't mean you have to figure out how to pay them. My church has never paid me. I have always found other uh, funding sources. Um, and there are a lot of different ways you can do this depending on um, the area that you live in and how how affluent people are. <laughs> so, um, you know, once a Man. person is licensed, yeah, I love it. So there's your slogan right there. But, Hire yeah. counselors; I try. they work I tell for people. free. 
I, I tell, <laughs> yes, I tell people this. I, and everyone says, wow, why aren't more churches doing this? And I'm like, I know, right? But also, it's because there's been this huge debate within the church about biblical counseling versus integration, and churches haven't tried this yet. This is a new answer to the bigger questions that were being debated in the last 50 years. And so I think it's exciting. It's an exciting time. And honestly, I started writing about this because I got so aggravated. I went to a big, huge conference with like 13,000 pastors attending the big name thing. And um, they had a, in their like sign in registration, they had, you know, check off what your, you know, title is for your church position. And so they had everything from like creative arts director and, you know, of course, youth pastor and senior pastor and, you know, pastor of, I don't know, just random things. And I'm like, I've never even heard of these positions. Anything with and the name counselor pastor was not after. on the list. Yeah. Counseling was not on the list. And so I was like, this is crazy. Why is it that you have like 20 choices, half of which I've never heard of, and you don't have counseling on here. Um, and so that was the moment I was still at the conference when I started blogging immediately. I, I got the website, churchtherapy.com, and, and opened my Twitter account, and I said, that's it. I have to talk about this because, obviously, there are not enough people doing this. And at that conference, the pastors, big-name pastors, all the guys you've heard of, they all spoke very highly of counseling. They're not against it, but um, there were no counselors that were doing presentations or breakouts or anything. There was not one mental health professional presenting at that conference. And so I said, all right, well, I just need to get louder then. So, um, so I started writing back then. And then last year I went to another conference and once again, you know, that was kind of the theme of like, here's how to do church and here's all the great things we do, which was very helpful. But I, I took note of the fact that they really were not doing anything to answer the mental health care question. And so most churches like that, think they're doing something because they have a list that of counselors in the area that people can get. And um, that, that's something. It's better than nothing. But ultimately, um, and I forget the stats on this, but again, Ed Setzer's work with Lifeway Research would um, indicate, you know, 29, I think, percent of churches have a list like that. Um, but few people actually have heard of, of that list, so they don't know that it exists. Um, and so it's already difficult for people to go and tell their pastor that they're struggling and they need help because they don't know how their pastor is going to respond half the time. Um, and then, okay, you get a business card and someone says, you know, the pastor says, okay, we can't really help you here, but, you know, talk to this stranger in a building you've never been to before. I'm sure that will help you. That makes people fall through the cracks because most of those referrals are never going to be followed up on. So people aren't getting help because it's, intimidating and it's you know stressful and they, they really aren't going to do it and I have so many people who have said to me I would never have gone to therapy except for the fact that I knew where your office was and I had already met you before which flies in the face of every single thing that the mental health field thinks is true about counseling and trust and how to build that um, but it just when it's accessible and people can trust something they follow through with that and so I think that's just a huge piece of why I think this is so important. Yeah, if you, the study that you're referencing there for listeners, if you want to learn more about that, we'll link it in the show notes, or you can actually go back, listen to episode one of this podcast where we had Scott McConnell, director of Lifeway Research, on, and we, uh, we talked a bit about some of the stats from that study in detail. So, coming yeah, full that's circle. Yeah, it's a great study.
Yeah. It was a oh. fascinating study. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I got one more question for you. Uh, okay. I'm listening and sitting here, Twitter stalking you. And okay. uh, <laughs> I see that you a couple of days ago um, tweeted about a new um, coming soon small group curriculum on mental illness. Yes. I'm super uh, excited about that. Yeah, I want to hear about it. That's so awesome. Yeah. Well, you know, um, my one of my books, the one that is most particularly relevant to this conversation today is um, called On Edge, Mental Illness in a Christian Context. And in that, um, I talk a little bit about the history that I described today. I talk about specific mental health disorders, talk about a few other kinds of problems like domestic violence or self-esteem or suicide, those things. And then I talk about, you know, how the pastor um, can play a role and how to talk to your pastor if they don't really understand mental illness. Um, and so that book has been really helpful for people. And I've gotten a lot of really great feedback on that. And um, several people um, contacted me and they said, hey, is it okay if we use that material for a Sunday school class or a small group I'm leading? And I said, yes, of course, that's great. And so I just had enough people that were giving me that feedback that I thought, you know what, we really need to make this accessible and make this something that people can lead a group about because it's really important. And it's so easy to take this material and just have an eight-week um, class about it. And so I'm almost done, and I'm hoping to release that within probably the next month. And um, I have um, basically... Uh, a format of a group that would be about 90 minutes, though it can certainly be adapted to whatever you have available to you. Um, and then I kind of walk through the material. Um, I'm recording some bonus video content for that. So there's a video to show each week that will go along with the curriculum. And um, it's just a great conversation that we all need to be having. You know, a lot of times people say, well, gee, I don't know anyone with mental illness or I don't have one myself. And I, and I say, you know what, you need to read this book anyway. You need to have this conversation anyway, because number one, you probably have, and you just don't know it. <laughs> and maybe yeah. you've even told them to pray more and you didn't realize it. Um, and, you know, I think it's just part of what it means to decrease stigma is that this is a conversation that's active in our churches all the time. And um, when we have those conversations, then somebody who's struggling gets the chance, the boldness to say, you know what? Yeah struggled with that. And if you're not talking about it, they remain silent. And I think that's what I'm really interested in um, fighting is that, you know, people are really voiceless because especially if there's, you know, negative side comments, oh, well, yeah, oh, they say they're depressed and, you know, kind of sarcasm around it or something like that, you know, which people, even well-meaning people, you know, say those kinds of things. And it just increases the amount of shame and the silence. Whereas if we're talking about this um, and helping people understand what's going on, then they're ready, they're equipped to have some really helpful conversations. And it really helps people know what, what mental health resources are in their area. So it encourages them to find those resources as well. So yeah, stay on the lookout for that, that eight-week curriculum. It'll, it'll look kind of the same, similar cover to the On Edge um, one. It'll just say leader's guide on it. So it's really, you know, you just buy one for the leader and then the participants in the group would, you know, need to have the On Edge book themselves. Gotcha. We want to thank you so much for being here. If you want to connect with Kristen, you can find her on Twitter at Church Therapist or her website, churchtherapy.com. Uh, there's links there to a number of her books. There's four of them, I believe. Uh, you can find those yep. on Amazon and we'll have links for all that in the show notes. As always, if you want to connect with Steve, 
You can find him on Twitter at IamSteveAustin or at Grace'sMessy.com. You can find me on Twitter at RobertVore or at Robert-Vore.com. Kristen, do you have any closing words for us? Um, just thank you much for having me on. I'm so excited to be a part of this conversation and I love what you guys are doing and Twitter is our little uh, place where we all yeah. cheer each other on and I love that. Um, so, you know, thanks so much for having me and great job with this podcast. Super excited that you're well, doing thank this. thank you. Thank yeah. you so much for being here. It's been yeah, a great yeah. conversation today. Absolutely. For sure. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH Podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note, if you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.